Okay, we are looking into the Gospel according to Matthew, Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1 starts with the genealogy of Jesus. And this is actually the genealogy of Jesus through the line of his adopted father, Joseph. The genealogy of Jesus through his mother's line, well actually his, his, his mother and his, 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 uh, um, his adoptive father, Joseph, were actually related. And that's not at all unusual, especially in the third world and even today. Not at all unusual. Uh, but through that line, uh, it, it, it's in the Gospel according to Luke that you see it more through his mother's line. But let's begin to read this. Matthew chapter 1, reading from verse 1. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah, and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Aminadab. Aminadab was the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boab was the father of Oeb, Obed by Ruth. Obed the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam the father of Abiha. Abiha, the father of Asa. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. Joram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Ammon. Ammon, the father of Josiah. Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Sheltiel, Sheltiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abihud, Abihud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Akim, Akim the father of Eliud, Eliud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Metathan, Metathan the father of Jacob, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. So this genealogy traces back the lineage of Jesus actually to Abraham, which documents him being a child of Abraham and a Jew. In the genealogy that's in the book of Luke, it actually traces him right on back to Adam. But being now descended from Abraham, let's look and we'll touch upon some of the same points that I mentioned a few weeks ago. But what's important to watch here is the people. Many of these people are really quite normal, meaning that they are sinners just like you and me. It's interesting that many religions will claim great heritages of lineages. And in here, God documents lots of people with really severe problems. 
And that, to me, is one of the reasons why the Scriptures are so beautiful. It is something to which I can relate. In other words, it is fallen people that are being used by God. For example, in verse, in verse 3, it talks about this man named Judah, who is one of twelve brothers. Jesus comes from the tribe of Judah. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Tamar was a Gentile woman. She was not a Jew. And Tamar was Judah's daughter-in-law. So in other words, these two boys, Perez and Zerah, were born out of incest. And not only were they born out of incest, Tamar was acting like a prostitute. Judah didn't know who she was because she was dressed like a prostitute. So Judah goes and solicits this prostitute, not knowing that it's his own daughter-in-law. There are two boys that are born. One of the boys, Perez, is in the lineage that is documented here. Why would God want to do something like this? Couldn't He have kept this a little bit more clean? Certainly He could have. But remember, in our line, in our heritage, in our life, there is plenty of sin to go around. And there is plenty of hope. And then as you read on down, it says that in verse 5, Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. So you see, Boaz was born to a woman named Rahab. Rahab was a prostitute. Rahab was the one who, when the spies went into the land, they stayed in her home. Why would a woman allow two men to stay in her home? Well, because she was a prostitute and she was used to doing this type of thing. It was no big deal for her. But she had faith. And she was the only person in Jericho that was spared along with her family. So, Salmon, this Jewish man, marries this Gentile woman, Rahab, the harlot, the prostitute, who has faith in God, and they bear a son named Boaz. So, again, of within this lineage, God breaks this standard, this Jewish standard, to only name men. He names four women, all of them Gentile women. The first one he names was guilty of prostitution and incest, along with Judah, who was guilty of of prostitution, of soliciting a prostitute, and incest. And then you have Rahab. Rahab here was... was, um, was a prostitute, and they bore Boaz. And interestingly, Boaz became the father of Obed by Ruth. Boaz marries Ruth. Remember Ruth? There's this book of Ruth in the Old Testament. Ruth was a Gentile. She was a Moabite, meaning that she came from another line of incest. Because her generation, the whole Moabite people, started because of an incestual relationship between Lot and his oldest daughter. He had incest both with with his oldest daughter and his youngest daughter. Now this is getting pretty incest-filled. And that is what our lives are like. And God puts it right here in the beginning. He says it's right here. If you are concerned about what you've been through in life and wondering, can God use you? 
can God use you? The answer is yes, He can use you. Even if you're the product of incest, He can use you. Even if you've been involved in incest or prostitution, He can use you when you walk in faith. Boaz, so Boaz, Boaz's mother was a former prostitute. Boaz ends up marrying Ruth when no one else would reach out to this Moabite Gentile woman who was a widow, whose husband had died. He said, I'll have mercy on her, and I'll redeem her, and I'll marry her. And he even had to go and to make special arrangements so that he could marry her. You see what happens is his mother, his own mother was a prostitute who had turned her life around and she had displayed mercy because she had received mercy so that he then could turn and have mercy on Ruth. And then Ruth becomes, Ruth and Boaz become the grandfather of David. Grandfather and grandmother of David. So, so uh, uh, Ruth and Boaz, they had Obed. Obed had Jesse. Jesse had David. And then the last woman mentioned here, and, and so the last woman mentioned here is another Gentile woman. Bathsheba was a Hittite woman. And she was raped. So if you've been raped, can God use you? The answer is yes. The answer is a resounding yes. But what you see is you see in Boaz, because of what his mother had taught him, a prostitute who had been redeemed and brought into the kingdom of Israel, because of the mercy that he had learned from his mother, he reaches out to another woman. And often what you will find is those who have been through the hardest of situations can be the most merciful. Those who have been through the hardest of situations can be the most merciful. Look in Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. Jesus talks about this very, this very concept of learning to have mercy in Luke chapter 7. And what's happening in Luke chapter 7 is a Pharisee named Simon invites Jesus over his house for a meal. And remember, Jesus had some strong words for the Pharisees, but a Pharisee invited him over, so he took him up on it. He went and he had dinner at his home. Invite people over. Jesus went and he had a meal at this Pharisee's house. In verse 36 of, of Luke chapter 7. Now one of the Pharisees was question, one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him. And he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Okay, so this reclining at the table. So what they would do, they would have these tables that were about, about a foot and a half off the ground. And they would lie down on the floor, up on one elbow, usually a pillow underneath them. And that's the way they would eat. So their feet would be away from the table, their heads more toward the table. And that's the way they gathered. That's just the way they ate. It's not more right, it's not more wrong, it's just the way they ate. You can eat standing up, it doesn't make you more or less holy. Right? So that's just the way they ate. And so all these pictures of the Last Supper, where all the, on one side and sitting in chairs, is probably wrong. Alright? This is the way they ate. And, and uh, uh, there are, 
you know, I was, I was once traveling and I was brought into a traditional Arab restaurant. And that's exactly how we ate. You know, they had this low table and, and you know, you, and it was, it was very uncomfortable for me. It's just because I'm not used to it. And there was a woman there from the city who was a sinner. And that word sinner means an immoral woman. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with perfume. So get this picture. Jesus is here eating. He's, he's lying down. His feet are out from the table. She is standing behind him. She's standing at his feet, just weeping. It says that she was standing. So at first she comes in and she's standing behind him, just weeping, because she's a prostitute. And she's weeping so much that the tears are falling and falling on the feet of Jesus. And when she sees that she's wetting his feet with her tears, she kneels down and she starts to wipe them clean with her hair. Then she takes this vial and she starts to pour this ointment on his feet and starts to pour perfume on it and, and, and wiping his feet off. And then it says, now when the Pharisee, in verse 39, who invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, Say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors, and one owed him 500 denarii and another 50. And when they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave both of them. So which one of them will love him more? And Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, You judged correctly. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven her, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Then he said to her, Your sins have been forgiven. And those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, Who is this man who, who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Jesus knows what we are thinking. It says in verse 39, Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were really a prophet, he'd know who this person is and what kind of woman she is. Jesus knows what we say to ourselves. Jesus knows the thoughts that we have in our own hearts. He knows it. Not only did he know who this woman was and what type of woman this was, he also knew what Simon the Pharisee was thinking. One day when I was 25 years old, my wife and I went to a, a, a uh, 
a program by David Wilkerson. And David Wilkerson is a, is a charismatic preacher, and he is excellent. He went through New York City in the 1970s and started evangelizing the gangs in New York City. And this is before such things were done by other people. He was the guy who started it. And he would always wear nice clothes, wear his suit, and go and start evangelizing these gangs. And many of them were coming to the Lord. So she wanted to go and see David Wilkerson. And so we, we came the first day to this crusade, and it was in this huge church. And uh, um, they had overflow rooms with some closed-circuit TV. And we were sitting way in the back. And I really was not getting into this at all. Because David Wilkerson didn't minister in the type of way that I was used to. For example, he would say, somebody here has a problem with their left knee. And I'm thinking, you know, you've got 8,000 people here. Somebody's going to have a bad left knee. So I wasn't impressed by this. All right? And so this person comes up and he prays for them. And the person says, it's better. It's really better. I'm thinking, oh, come on. Please. Well, after, after this, this service, he has this altar call. And Shireen goes up with these masses of people. And I'm thinking, I will never find my wife again. Well, anyway, after, after 30 minutes or so, she came walking back and found me. She wanted to go the next day, and I really didn't want to go. But being the nice husband that I am, <laughs> I took her, to the, and she wanted to go two hours early. Two hours early to make sure she got a front seat. So we're sitting on the front seat of this crusade that I'm not even into, and I'm holding my Bible and sitting on this front seat, and... You know, I'm really not into the way that he's preaching. And he stops shortly into his service. He says, you know, we have a problem. There's a problem in the church today. And most people thought he was speaking in general. And he looks right over at me, right on the front row. He says, the problem in the church today is young guys, like around 25 years old, who are Christians. At least I think they're Christians because they carry their Bibles. And I had my Bible like this. <laughs> who think that the way they do it is the right way, that the way their little group does it is the right way, but we have a bigger God who uses all sorts of ways. And I wanted to just crawl underneath that chair and never come out. And I learned that when a prophet of God, a man of God is speaking, and I'm not into it, that I just say, God bless him, God bless him, for fear that that man is going to get a word from God and embarrass me again. Jesus was able to do that sort of thing better than anyone else. He knew what Simon was thinking. And so in response to what Simon is saying to himself, he, he tells this story. He says, one guy owed me $50,000, owed his master $50,000, and another guy owed him $5,000. Ten to one differential here. And he forgave both debts. Which one loves more? He says, well, I suppose the guy who forgave more. He says, right. It wasn't that Simon was without sin. In fact, Jesus often pointed out sin in a far more vigorous way to the Pharisees than he ever did to the prostitutes. To the prostitutes, he always says, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. Remember, C.S. Lewis, what he said, he said, sexual sins are child's play compared to the sin of pride and conceit. And this is what Simon had. Not that Simon had less sin, because he says, 
He says in verse 47, For this reason I say to you, her sins which are many have been forgiven, for she's loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. In other words, you've only been forgiven a little. Not that you are, are only in need of a little, but you've not opened yourself up. Remember, the only, the only way we can say, we, we, we can keep ourselves from, from being forgiven of sin, the only way to have an unforgivable sin is to think that we do not sin. Because then we are never in need. And so what he does is he turns the whole thing around. And this woman who saw her own sin was so full of mercy because she had received mercy from God. And then he says to her, he says, your sins have been forgiven. Jesus can do this. Jesus can proclaim forgiveness of sins. Verse 49, Then those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, Who is this man who even forgives sin? Who is he? That he can be so presumptuous as to forgive sins. So in response to what they're thinking, Jesus says out loud, He said to them, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Not only is he forgiving sin, he's proclaiming salvation upon her. In response to our thoughts, Jesus says things. Remember, when we judge, Jesus knows this very thing. It says in James, James chapter 2, verse 13, it says, it, it says, judgment will be merciless to him who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James 2.13 Judgment will be merciless to him who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Jesus did not come to condemn the world. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now if you look in chapter 8 of, of Luke Luke chapter 8, verse 1. Soon afterwards, he began going around from one city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women, who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. Mary, who was called, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod Stuart, and Susanna, and many others who were contributing their support out of their private means. You ever wonder who supported Jesus' ministry? Because remember, they weren't out fishing anymore. They gave up that business until Jesus was crucified, and then, then, then Peter went back to it with some of his friends. But they weren't fishing anymore. Where did they get the money to live on? Wealthy women were donating to Jesus' ministry. Jesus was totally changing the world. Women had no respect, no honor, no place in society that was worth having. And it says that the twelve were with him, along with bunches of women that he had healed, that he had cast demons out of. So these women are following along with him too. Jesus was not worried about his own reputation. People say, hey, Jesus and his twelve guys got these sorts of women following him around. Jesus wasn't worried about his reputation. He was very secure in who he was. And he said, you can follow. It's okay. You can follow. And remember when the twelve 
when one kills himself and the other eleven flee, it was those women who were standing at the foot of the cross. And it was those women that he appears to first because they were the ones coming to the tomb. He appeared first to Mary and to the other women he appeared to them. It was these women. Jesus calls out women in Matthew chapter 1 and he names them by name, four of them. And He displays mercy to them. And then this prostitute, this former prostitute Rahab, teaches mercy because she had been forgiven much, she loved much. She's taught her son Boaz how to love. To love the people that the world doesn't love because she was loved by her husband when the rest of the world just called her a prostitute or a former prostitute. And Boaz was the one that reaches out to Ruth and says, I'll take her. Yes, she's a widow, but I'll take her. Yes, she's a Moabitess, but I'll take her. He reaches out. And this is exactly what Jesus does. He reaches out to those who are hurting. And to those who are judgmental, He says, look at yourself. You need this too. You know, He would have forgiven every Pharisee in that room too had they wept and sought forgiveness. But they, being great theologians, didn't need forgiveness. They were just examining Him and judging other people and proclaiming themselves to be more worthy than this woman. And so Jesus forgives her, and then He saves her, and then she starts following Him. And there were other women following Him. And it wasn't just poor women. It was Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward. So Herod's steward, his wife, is following Jesus. And she's a wealthy woman, and she is supporting his ministry. It says that they were, they were the ones contributing to his support out of their private means. And you will often see this in families, that the men are tightwads, and the women are gracious and giving. And the men want to, and, and, and the women want to give to the church, and the men don't want to give. They just want to, they say, we have no extra money. But they can buy season tickets to the football games and to the baseball games, but they have no extra money to give. And this woman knows that it's hypocrisy, and it just wrenches her heart to see the cheapness of her husband. This is not at all uncommon in the church. And it names the women and it says, And there were many others who were contributing to their support out of the private means. There were also women, many of them, who were graciously supporting the ministry of Jesus. Could they have gotten in trouble? Yes! But they supported the ministry of Jesus. Jesus was the great reformer. Jesus was the one who reached out to women and said, Hey, you can follow us too. It's okay. It's okay. And you will often find in families that have slipped away totally from the Lord, there is one old grandmother that's holding on. It's rarely the grandfather. It's the grandmother who's holding on, who's praying for that family. Jesus is the great liberator of women. Always has been. He has always been this way. 
And the gospel is the great liberator of women. And that's what we spent six weeks going over. That it is the husband's duty to serve his wife as Christ does the church. Mercy is what is seen in this passage. Mercy. And then the other thing that you see in this genealogy, when you, when you read about the lives of these people, many of them were not very nice people. Not at all. Look in Hebrews chapter 11. In Hebrews chapter 11, there's a, there's a list of men who had great faith. But they also had some real problems. But if you look in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32. So the whole chapter talks about these lists of people. But then in verse 32, he starts really spewing out names. He said, And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, of Barak, of Samson, of Jephthah, of David, of Samuel, and the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. I mean, who was the one who had faith enough for a resurrection? It was the women. I mean, I think of all the things you see here, to believe God for resurrection, you know, it's probably the hardest thing. You know, you can get a guy to pray for you when you're sick. But I don't see many people coming to pray for people who are dead. Even though we have precedent. Several precedents in the Bible where God raised the dead. The great men of faith, when, well, they're already dead. You know, <laughs> you know I'll bless the family. But it's the women who had faith even for the resurrection. He lists off a list of people here who many of them had some real problems in their life. Gideon. You know, Gideon at heart was a real chicken. But God filled him with boldness. Barak. Barak wouldn't go to battle without Deborah. He said, I'm not going to... Deborah was a prophetess, it says. And Deborah said, go to this battle and you will win. Barak said, you're not going to send me there. If you really believe this, you're going with me. She said, okay, I'll go with you. But remember, then you won't receive the glory. A woman will. A woman will. And she did. Deborah went into the battle. And, and they, they, they beat this, this wicked king, Sisera, whose chariot's wheels got stuck in the mud. Samson. I mean, you talk about problems. Talk about sexual problems. I mean, this guy, Samson, and talk about, you know, woman problems. This guy would tell this woman anything, knowing that she was a liar. Jephthah. Jephthah made a, a proclamation concerning his daughter, saying that whatever I see when I come back from this battle, if I win the battle, whatever I see, I will offer up to you. Well, the first thing he sees is his daughter. You know, these crazy sort of, uh, sort of people. David. David the rapist. David the rapist. David the murderer. 
Samuel and the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms. Now, so, you, so Samuel was pretty good. We don't have much bad to say about Samuel. The only thing bad to say we, have, we can say bad about Samuel is his kids didn't walk with God. And, and um, you know, that happens to really good guys. <laughs> Anyways, I said, this is a joke. That was just a joke. My daughter's here. This is just a joke. This is... <laughs> Um, by faith they conquered kingdoms they performed acts of righteousness so you see faith was able to take them from a place where they would not normally be the Bible is not a list of holy men it is not there is only one holy and that is Jesus in this whole book it lists one holy man and his name is Jesus everyone else is a stinking sinner just like you and me but they did mighty things because of God. And you and I sell ourselves short in life multiple times because we will not trust God. By faith they conquered kingdoms, they performed acts of righteousness, they obtained promises. This book is full of promises, but you don't obtain them because you only obtain them by faith. Every promise in the Bible is coupled to some act of obedience. If you can find a promise in the Bible that's not coupled to an act of obedience, let me know. I'd like to make note of that one. Every promise is coupled to some act of obedience. They obtained promises. They shut the mouths of lions. They quenched the power of fire. They escaped the edge of the sword. From weakness were made strong. That little verse, that little passage, from weakness they were made strong, has helped me multiple times. I'll go into a situation, I'll go into some speaking engagement, and I'll think, God, I feel so weak, I feel so inadequate. And I will grab hold of this word and I will say, but your word says, from weakness they were made strong. Well, Lord, right now I am really, really weak. So, by I take your promise to make me strong. And I am telling you, I get up to speak, and it's just a roaring lion. And people are just... Lord, because of God. It is God who does this. And so we come trembling in prayer. God, I cannot do this thing. God says, okay, you're in the right position now. From weakness, you shall be made strong. They became mighty in war, it says. They did not become mighty sitting in church. They did not become mighty watching TV, they became mighty in war. It is in war that we become mighty. It is in the battle that we show forth strength. And you have multiple examples of that throughout the Scriptures. Gideon became mighty when? In war. He showed forth his mightiness. You see the same sort of thing in, in, in Civil War generals. Stonewall Jackson, for example. I mean, he was a terrible professor at the military institute, but in, in, in battle, he just became tremendous, absolutely tremendous. There are scriptural examples, there are examples here on earth. It is in war that we become mighty. It is in the tough times that we become mighty. And you see this with people. You see people who have, you know, real wishy-washy sort of walks, and then they get cancer on their, on their deathbed. And God gets a hold of their heart, and in this war they become so mighty and great, Power comes from them. 
in the war we become mighty. So, you know, we view trouble as, oh no, trouble again. And God is saying, yes. Now is your time to become mighty. And they put foreign armies to flight. Women receive back their dead by resurrection. So if somebody dies, if the women could just take care of this, please. (laughs) This is what it says. Women are to take care of that. Women received back, and others were tortured, not accepting the release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others, which others? Other women! They were tortured, not accepting the release so that they could obtain a better resurrection. You know, God has something for us. He documents again and again through the Scriptures that mercy is there for us if we'll only take hold of it. And then He says to us, I want you to display mercy, for mercy triumphs over judgment. This is our call, to display mercy and not judgment. And remember, as soon as we start judging, Jesus knows exactly what we are saying. Knows exactly what we're saying when we're judging. And He's able to catch us short. And to those who, dis- he dis- who display mercy, what does He say? He says, Oh, look at that person displaying mercy to that other person. Father, forgive them and save them. When we show mercy, we receive mercy, forgiveness, and salvation. Let's pray. Father, I thank You so much for the beauty of Your Word. It is so contrary to the world. Father, thank You that You call us to something much greater. You take us from this this dung heap, as the Scriptures say, and You pick us up and You cause us to walk like kings. Father, thank You for the demonstration of Your Word. How You take simple men and women who will cry out to You for mercy and You give them mercy. And then if they take hold of faith, You will use them so mightily. Father, I pray for these young people that You would change the hearts of many to display mercy and to display kindness and to learn to walk in faith. Father, I pray for Your grace to be upon them that they would learn to walk in faith. By Your mercies, so fill them. And by the grace of God, Father, I offer this up to You, asking in the name of Jesus. Amen.